Here it is, I said, right? No, maybe. Um, but if you're the parent, right, you're kind of thinking about the other side of this, this conversation. You know, you tell your kid, ah, you got to go take a shower. They're like, ah, do I have to? It's like, well, yeah, you got to take a shower. Well, but I, I'm just going to go back outside and I'm going to get dirty again. Well, yeah, but you smell right now. And it's just like this back and forth and back and forth. And finally, it's just, it, it ends somewhere around like, but why? And the only answer you have left as a parent is, well, because I told you so. It's, it's the trump card, right? And so, um, but in the, in the right context, you know, that, that's a, actually a good answer. Uh, you know, if, if your child's in imminent danger, you don't need to, you shouldn't have to explain your reasoning, right? Yeah, that could be dangerous for the kid. Or if you take that even a little bit further, do you really want your child obeying simply because they've reasoned through something and gone, hmm, I can discern that what mom and dad are telling me right now is correct and good for me, so therefore I'll do it. First off, they're not able to do that. But second of all, that's not what we're looking for in them, right? We want them to obey out of love, out of respect, out of honor for, for mother and father, right? And um, when we look at this, though, I, I'm reminded of, of an old George Strait song, actually, where he says, there was no doubt that stubborn boy was just like my father's son. It's a family thing, right? It's my kids are stubborn because I'm stubborn. And I'm stubborn because my parents are stubborn. And on back and back and back, all the way to Adam and Eve, right? That's the reason we're going to be in Genesis today. Um, but uh, it's, it's all rooted in what's called the fall, all right? It's, it's last week Derek taught on creation, and everything was good. You know, we look back at uh, Genesis 1 here. And in, I'll, I'll read a little bit. We're going to jump around a little bit in Genesis today. Um, but uh, verses 1 and 2 here in Genesis 1, the whole Bible starts out with, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the beginning. That's, that's everything. Right? It's, there was nothing but God. It was without form and void. And then, you kind of go towards the end of, of chapter 1 here. We go to 27 to 31. And all of a sudden it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. That's a beautiful image. We start from nothing, formless and void. And out of that, God creates beauty and life and sustenance and everything. And we're going to see how Adam and Eve took that and screwed it all up. So let's start in prayer here. Father, thank you for just this time to, to be in your word, to, to look back on, on our own history, 
Lord, a history that, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we look inside ourselves and it, it lines up. <laughs> we screw up all the time. We're selfish. We're stubborn. We're disobedient. Um, and if we're honest with ourselves, looking back and saying, gosh darn it, Adam and Eve, it doesn't make sense because we do it all the time. And uh, God, I just pray that as we go through this today, Lord, we would see the pain, the, the suffering, all of this that's come out of the fall, but that we would end seeing that uh, you know how to work with formless and void. You know how to create beauty out of nothing. And uh, God, that we would end in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, like I said, last week we had the creation. Today we're, we're moving just a couple chapters in. And, and one of the things that we really need to draw out of the creation account and this fall is, is an anthropology, an understanding of what it means to be a human, to, to be who we are, to make decisions, to act the way we do. Um, and... and a Christian anthropology is really grounded in, in two things here. It's we are all made in the image of God, and we all have dignity because of that, every single one of us. And we're also broken. It's these two things. We're, we're completely made in the image of God. We're also broken. And so how do we set up a, a society that accounts for both of those things. That's why we study anthropology, is to understand how do we set up a society that can account for these things, to account for the fact that we all are worthy of dignity, but there's brokenness that needs to be mitigated, and we need formation and learning, and we need to, to learn these morals and these things. And then on the other side, there's, there's what I would refer to as kind of the secular worldview today, that really takes kind of an opposite approach to this. It, it looks at man and says that, no, people are generally good, and it's the world that breaks them. It's institutions. It's, it's these other things that kind of drag them down over time. It's what leads to things like the self-esteem movement, which generally today, even, even in the secular world, is seen as a bit of a failure. Um, you know, it's things that say like, oh, no, you're perfect as you are. You know, follow your heart. And these things feel good, right? Like, it sounds good, it feels good, but it's missing something. It's missing the fact that, no, you're not perfect as you are. You're absolutely of the utmost value, but you've got growth that needs to happen. You need to be molded and shaped. You need to learn and grow. And, and ultimately, you need something bigger than yourself to do that. And if you look at that secular worldview, you know, we look at the world around us, and it just flies in the face of it, right? Kids fly in the face of that. I never had to teach my kids how to lie, right? They figured that one out on their own, right? You never had to, like, learn how to sin. You just kind of figure that out because you're selfish and stubborn, and it works for you in times. And so we need that something greater to pull us along. Um, so if we go to, to chapter two here, like I said, we're going to jump around a little bit. There is so much in the first few chapters of Genesis that we could go on for days and days, but I really want to focus in on, on the fall, on Adam and Eve's decision-making, and where we end up at the end. So we're going to start with uh, verses five through nine here in chapter two. So here in chapter two, um, we're really focusing in on Eden, the Garden of Eden, 
and Adam and Eve. So chapter one was like kind of a holistic view of creation. Here we're zooming in. And so it says here, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we zoom in here on the Garden of Eden. And if we get a little context here, we understand that everything is created. The whole, the whole earth is created. And then God went to Eden. And it's almost like Eden wasn't quite where God wanted it yet. You know, he had to purposefully go into Eden and bring up these trees and these plants. And, and he took Adam, who was already created. Adam was not created in the Garden of Eden. He was actually picked up and then placed into the Garden of Eden to go and work it. And so there's this tiny geographical area on earth that is going to be the focus point. And God gives Adam a command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's supposed to take this Eden that God has made exactly like he wants it, cultivate it, and spread it throughout the earth. Does it sound kind of familiar? We look at Christianity, right? And Christianity started in this one tiny geographic location, and Jesus told his disciples, go and tell everybody else about this, right? Go and spread this around. And so you see here, even from the beginning, before sin happened, God intended from the beginning to have his perfect will completed through his most beloved creation. Not by robots, not by himself going and just manually doing everything, but by working through his people. That's how God always works, is through his people. And we even see that parallel happen later on. Paul draws this out in the book of Romans, where he, and actually in multiple places in the New Testament, where he refers to Jesus as the second Adam. It's, it's a redo of it. And so we're going to start over again in this one little geographic location and spread throughout the whole earth. The only difference is Jesus does it right, whereas Adam fails. Now, if we jump down a little bit, we're going to go to verse 15 through 17. And we're going to start to see, um, we're going to start to see things kind of get a little hairy in here. So it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice so far in the Bible, God has not given a negative command to Adam and Eve. He has not said, don't do this. It, it has been, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. Now all of a sudden we've got a negative command, a you shall not go and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a clear command and a clear consequence 
that Adam has to listen to here. And these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, they give the ultimate contrast in here, right? We have the tree of life that is to give eternal life to those. Adam's free to eat from this tree at this point. But then on the other side, it's not the tree of death. The sermon would have been a lot easier if it was the tree of death, but it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to see how that plays into um, the fall here. And if you think about this, at the moment, Adam and Eve, they don't really understand sin. They don't know evil yet, right? All they know so far is that God's given me this awesome garden where I can work and play and do all this stuff. And there's all these cool animals and birds flying around and amazing flowers and all this stuff. It, they don't understand that there's this other thing that's outside of this. It's, it's like if you had two jars, right? If you had, like a cookie jar over here filled of just sugary, buttery goodness, and then this like Vegemite jar over here filled with this weird, salty, yeasty, veggie thing. And they're over here in this cookie jar, just loving life. No idea there's even this weird other Vegemite jar over here, right? That's where they're at right now. They're completely naive of this. And the knowledge of the good and evil, though, the knowledge of this other jar, it was going to come one of two ways. Adam and Eve had, had two ways they could have approached this. They could have been in this jar, and then God points out that, hey, there's, there's something outside of this jar. It's God saying to them, don't eat of this tree. There's something outside of this, and I don't want you to, to experience that. And at that point, they had two choices. They could go, okay. God's telling me I shouldn't do this. There's something outside of here. It's not good for me. I'm going to obey. It's, they, they stay inside the cookie jar, but they know that now there's this other jar over here that I need to avoid. The other option they had in that moment was, God told me I shouldn't eat of this tree, but I'm a little curious. What's in that other jar over there? right? And so in that moment, if they take that approach, it's essentially them placing themselves above both of those jars now and determining for themselves where they will go, what is good and what is evil. It is, in fact, it is man attempting to position himself over good and evil that brings death to man. Only God has that right to establish what is good and evil. But as we know, Adam and Eve, we're going to choose the second option. We're going to see that here in Genesis 3. If we turn there and look at verses 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So everything's going great, and then there's this serpent that just shows up out of nowhere. Like, what? This serpent shows up, this crafty, he's described as, he's crafty, deceitful. Who is this? In Revelation, at the end of Scripture, in verse 12, 
or chapter 12, verse 9, it makes it clear that this is actually Satan. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So this is Satan has weaved his way into the garden and starts talking to Eve. And he begins by, uh, this dialogue is really interesting. He begins by twisting what God said just a little bit. Satan knows what God said. Satan knows that God said, don't eat of that tree. But Satan comes in and he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Twist it just a little bit. He's trying to make God sound like this kind of strict and overbearing father figure who's just making these rules to, to oppress Adam and Eve. He's kind of just making God look like something he's really not. God never said anything about not eating of any of the other trees. But if he can just kind of hint at it, just put that little seed in Eve's mind of, hey, maybe, maybe that God that's talking to you, maybe he's not what you think he is. You know, maybe, maybe he doesn't know best. And actually, I would even argue that Eve maybe had a little bit of that in her already. A little bit of a, you know, why can't I eat of that tree? And Satan's just kind of taking it and twisting it, using it just a little bit, planting that little seed. When God moves from, from a benevolent father figure to severe, Eve's, Eve's view of God changes. And that's when Satan can dig a little bit deeper. And you see that sin often builds from a small bit of doubt and grows from there if not immediately dealt with. So now Genesis 3, 4 through 7, continue this conversation here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows, what you, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan plants that small seed, and when Eve starts to question just a little bit, that's right when he can strike. And he comes in, and he just flat-out denies God. It goes from deception to complete denial of God's word. Puts God completely in question in Eve's mind. And Eve looks at this, and notice what Eve does. She looks at the tree, and she goes, that fruit looks pretty good. Like... Why can't I eat it? Why shouldn't I be able to eat this fruit? It looks delicious on there, and I'm sure it's good for me. She looks at what's in front of her, ignores what God has said, and acts on her own reasoning at this point. Now, is reasoning bad? Re reasoning is not a bad thing. God gave us minds to think, to process, to, to reason through things. But what Eve has done is completely abandon what God has said in her reasoning. It's no longer even a factor. It's not even in the formula for her anymore. 
And so you see here that Eve has decided, I'm going to be the arbiter of what is good and evil. I'm going to place myself above this, and I'm going to decide what is right and wrong. The sin here was not eating the fruit. The fruit was just a tool for Eve to do what she wanted. The sin was becoming God. She put herself in God's place in this situation. And it's easy to look at that and get frustrated and just be like, ah, come on, Adam and Eve. I mean, we joke around about that in the church a lot, right? Like, ah, if they just hadn't eaten the fruit, you know, things would be so much better today. But what that ignores is, is we do this all the time ourselves, right? It's anytime you hear somebody say something like, oh, well, my God wouldn't do that. Or, or my God wouldn't make a rule like that. Or every time we sin, basically what you're saying when you sin is, it's not really that bad. Or maybe you're just saying it's, it's just not even a sin. It's us making ourselves the arbiters of what is right and wrong. It's us reasoning without God's input. And so if we're honest with ourselves, Adam and Eve are really, really great representatives for us. And um, one thing I, I, I want to really draw out in this is, you know, we talk a lot in the church about obeying God because his ways are best. And that's true. God's ways are best. You know, it, it's, it's not wrong to approach things that way. You know, God says to not have sex outside of marriage because it really makes sense. When you have sex outside of marriage, you get fatherlessness and foster care and, and, and abuse and abortion and all these other things, right? There's, there's logic behind these things that God has said. He's not making all of these things to oppress you. But is that the reason to obey? I want to draw this out because I want to understand, you could be an atheist and then look at God's instruction manual and go, hey, that really works for me. Leave God out of the equation and follow his instruction manual. That's not what God's looking for. We obey God because he said so and we love him for no other reason than that. It's because God said so. I love him. Of course I'm going to follow him. So what, what Adam and Eve missed is, is that life-giving obedience to God can be derived from no other place than a deep love for God. Uh, this, this point right here for me became so clear when I was reading. C.S. Lewis has, has a sci-fi trilogy. It's a three-book series, and it's amazing. The second book is still the best one, Jeff. I swear it is. Um, but the, in the second book, it, it's called Paralandra, and it's, it's the, supposed to be this idea of like a redo of Eden. And so the, the protagonist gets sent to this planet where everything is perfect. God's just created everything. There's this Adam and Eve character there. And then the antagonist shows up, who's the, supposed to be the, the Satan figure. And the, there's this one rule on this planet that all, the, the whole planet is these floating islands that go along, except for this one solid island. And the rule that God gives them is you can't stay on that island overnight. It's kind of like, well, that's a weird rule, right? Like, why, why can't I stay on that island overnight? And the, the antagonist in the book, he's trying to get Eve to do this. He's saying, well, what, what if God wants you to just kind of explore your freedom a little bit and, and, and you go and do this here? That's what God really wants for you. And then 
protagonist is just struggling and struggling. And then finally, he comes to this point, and he says this. And, and I, this just absolutely cleared this up for me. He says, I think he made one law of that kind in order that there might be obedience. In all these other manners, all these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what seems good in your eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, not, but not only because they are his will. Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you do something for which his bidding is the only reason? I love that. You obey because he said so. And that's it. Because I love him and he said so. Not because I reasoned through something and went, oh, this really makes sense in my life. It's no, I love him. He said to not do it. I'm going to obey. So let's go to uh, verses 8 through 13 here, and we're going to see the consequences of this action. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Now, (laughs) these verses always kind of make me chuckle a little bit. Um, But you look at it, and and what's Adam and Eve's first response? What's their their first instinct after they've sinned and they see God coming? They run. They're trying to hide. They don't want anything to do with God. They want to hide themselves. And then even once they're found, they want to shift excuses, get God looking somewhere else, right? What's God's first instinct, though? What's God's first instinct after Adam and Eve had sinned? God knew they sinned, right? He, he asked him, have you eaten of the tree? God knew. He knew what was going on. But what was God's first instinct? Pursuit. God was not going to let him stay there. God was not going to let them hide from him. He was not going to let them cover up their sin. God's first instinct was to pursue. Everything that God is will not allow him to abandon those whom he loves. Every character, attribute, whatever you want to call it, everything that God is, is going to pursue those whom he loves. Now, hiding, it, it, you look at Adam and Eve hiding, and it's just like, seriously, Adam and Eve, you, you're going to hide from God. We think about this, and, and what do we do when we sin? You know, we, we, we try to run from God. We try to cover it up. It's like God feels far off, but in reality, what's really happening in that moment when God feels far off is you've turned around and covered your eyes, and, and you're just kind of doing this, la, 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 kind of thing, right? You, you don't want anything to do with him. But if you were to just turn around and look, he's right there waiting for you. He was right there for Adam and Eve. 
you know, Pandora's box of everything evil has just opened up in the world. Every, every pain we've felt, all the suffering we see around us, everything we see around us has just opened up. But God already created everything out of nothing. He took formless and void and, and made beauty, right? He can take what we've got going on right here, and he can make it work. He can make beauty out of this. We're now at this point, Adam and Eve are at this point where their hearts are formless and void, and they need the one person who can make beauty out of that. And we're going to see God make that promise here. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is, uh, these verses are what's referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first gospel. It's the, the first time you hear the gospel in Scripture. It's God laying out his plan. Everything's been broken, but God has a plan. And that plan we know today is Jesus on the cross. That's the offspring that God refers to in here. The offspring from Eve is Jesus. And it says that Jesus will crush Satan's head. And Satan will bruise his heel. You ever think about that? That Jesus going on the cross and dying? It's like, like a little bite on the heel compared to what Jesus did to Satan in that moment. Jesus bought us the opportunity to be reconciled to God, to submit out of love. You look at Jesus' life, and that's, that's what his life was. It was obedience out of love for the Father. And now we have that in us when we accept Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Jesus' blood now flowing in our hearts. What was formless and void is now full of beauty and life. Now, if we fast forward a little bit in Genesis, we're going to go to uh, towards the end of chapter 3 here, uh, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way, that turned every way to guard the way around, or the way to the tree of life. So God kicks Adam and Eve out, puts this flaming sword in the cherubim. And when you hear the word cherubim, don't think of like the cute little like naked baby angels that you see in pictures and stuff like that. You can see descriptions of them in Ezekiel. It's nothing like that. It's suffice it to say that Adam and Eve aren't getting anywhere near the Garden of Eden again. Not going to happen. 
And God makes sure of it because he does not want them to see or take from the tree of life. I think this is fascinating. Yeah, what's the, the biggest struggle that humanity has had ever since this? Death. It's death, right? We're, it's everywhere we turn. We can't escape it, right? And there's this thing that's here that, that could give us eternal life. Like, why doesn't God just let us go back to that? Now, this is kind of a weird statement, so I'm just going to come right out and say it. But it is a blessing that God brought death into the world after we chose to take the authority of, of establishing good and evil into our hands. It is a blessing. It is a grace from God. And the reason it is a grace from God is because he did not want us to live for eternity broken. If we were broken and we still had access to the tree of life, we'd have eternity and brokenness and sin and rebellion. And God was not okay with that. So he takes away our access from it kicks Adam and Eve out, and he makes a different way. He makes a way to get back to him that will be fulfilling, that will not be full of sin, that will be filled with love for God, obedience and love for all eternity. Now, we're three chapters into the Bible, and everything's pretty much just gone to you-know-where at this point. But if you look at Scripture... The whole rest of the Bible is God restoring and then restored. And if we go to Revelation, the very end, you guys don't have to turn to it. It'll come up on the screen here. But you turn to the very end, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. We're going to see something familiar here. Revelation 22, 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So there's the, the tree of life again. And notice there's no other tree. It's before you had the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now you've got the tree of life on one side of the river, tree of life on the other side of the river. That tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's gone. We don't need it anymore. We've been there. We've done that. We saw how much it sucked. <laughs> we saw how terrible it was. We lived it. We did it. We don't need that anymore. But we also are there knowing, even in that, God pursued. Even in that, God loved me and pursued me. And now you got the tree of life on both sides of the river. Of the river. Eternal life in loving obedience to God. And I want to kind of wrap this up by, by looking at those two worldviews I talked about earlier. The, the biblical anthropology versus a secular anthropology. And if you look at this... The biblical view starts with man, formless and void, and ends in true hope. The secular view starts with false hope and ends formless and void. 
There is nothing at the end of the secular worldview. It starts assuming that we're good and ends in nothingness. The biblical worldview starts with, I'm broken, I'm formless and void, and I need God, and ends in true hope. And as Christians, that's how we approach this life. We approach this life with hope, with joy, because we know that there is something better. We can look at the world around us and reason purely from what we can visibly see, and it looks bad, right? A secular worldview is going to look at that, and of course there's pessimism and cynicism and tribalism and, and all this stuff that happens. But as Christians, we look at the world around us, we see all that's terrible, but God comes into our reasoning and says, no, I've got a plan. I've got this down. I've got the victory. I made all of creation. I can, I can do this. And so we look at all of this around us, and we end with hope. Father, we thank you for just this time to be in your word, Lord, to see just the, the overarching narrative within scripture of brokenness, but your creative ability, your, your love, your pursuit that takes our brokenness and brings us to joy, that fills us with hope, that when everything is going wrong around us, when what we see in front of us would lead us to misery, what you tell us, what you promise, leads us to hope. God, work in us and help us in, in the midst of a, a world that is angry and bitter and just wants to find fights and um, all of this. God, help us to be a light in the midst of that, that they would look at the church and say, why are those people so full of hope? God, and then we could tell them, it's, it's because of you. That's it. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything I see around me. It's because of you and what you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.